This is The Granite Beat, a podcast where we highlight New Hampshire journalists, ask them about recent stories they've published, and about what it's like to cover their corner of this small and interesting state. I'm Julie Hart, and I'm here with Adam Drapshow. Hello. Eric Rinston Lobel is fairly new to professional journalism, but has packed a broad range of experiences into his young career. Going back to his college days at Northwestern University, Eric oversaw radio broadcasts of the university's sports. Professionally, though, he's made his name as a writer. He has written several stories for Sports Illustrated, including one about a bowler who bowled a perfect game with a ball filled with his father's ashes. Since September of last year, he's been covering sports for the Concord Monitor. Thank you for joining us today, Eric. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, Eric, could you describe for us what attracted you to journalism in general and how you found yourself working for a newspaper? Yeah, so I was, I think, eight or nine years old, and Len Berman, who I grew up in New York, and Len Berman was the sports anchor for NBC4, and he was having a book signing at the local bookstore, so I, my mom took me to go, and uh, I got to meet him, and he gave me his email address, and my mom's like, oh, you know, you could do that when you get older, and that always kind of stuck with me. Um as I guess, you know, as much as they can when you're eight years old. And, you know, it was always something I had in the back of my mind. I would always email him when I was younger about, you know, whether it was I was a Yankee fan, which I'm sure people around here don't like, but I would email him about the Yankees or Giants or whatever, whatever I was interested in. He would always get back to me. He was always really nice. I met him a few other times. And so when I got to high school, I was very fortunate that our high school had a radio station that I was able to get involved with and kind of get some experience uh, just kind of learning how this stuff works. And I got to do my own show. And then once I got to Northwestern, I joined WR, Northwestern student radio station, uh, and got to broadcast games during my four years there. And the thing I loved about our radio station was that in addition to broadcasting, we also did written stories and podcasts and talk shows and all that fun stuff. So I got a good variety of experience there. But I knew that I wanted to write more than go into play-by-play broadcasting just because I enjoyed writing more. I got to write a bunch of stuff when I was at school. And you mentioned some of the stuff I did at Sports Illustrated. And I always just really enjoyed that. After I finished up class, I started looking for writing opportunities. And there weren't a lot, unfortunately, but the Concord Monitor was one. And I'm uh, glad that uh, they brought me on board. And it's been great to be around here. Were you always interested in sports journalism as opposed to journalism more broadly? I think it started sports. I mean, I was always, I was one of the kids that was watching something sports related 24-7 and couldn't really have a conversation about anything else. I think in recent years, I've definitely taken a broader interest in politics and how news outlets cover politics. I don't know that I've ever envisioned myself covering politics, partially because I don't know that I could keep my own biases out of it in a way that people would respect what I had to say. But I, I think I've taken, an, I think once I got to college I and we learn journalism more broadly, not just sports, I gained an appreciation for the nuances of the profession and how, you know, certain things you have to do to be successful. I think that's sort of one thing that jumped out to us and why we asked you to come in and join us. I enjoyed a story that you wrote recently about the shortage of officials for youth sports. 
It read more like a general news story than a sports news story. How did this story come to your attention and why did you and your editors decide it was worth reporting on? I think uh, we were sitting in the office and we were just kind of talking and I had been at a field hockey playoff game the night before um, in Exeter, I think. And Uh I had mentioned that I was impressed by one of the referees because there was a lot of heckling going on from parents and not a ton from the teams, but a little bit. And she wasn't listening to any of, I mean, she was shutting them down right away and good referees do that. And I just mentioned that. And Steve Leone, our publisher had said, Oh, like, what if we did a story? Like, you know, all like the worst things that referees in the area have had said to them or, you know, things that they deal with. And that kind of got my wheels turning. And I reached out to uh, a couple of officials in the area whose contact info is on the um, New New Hampshire Interscholastic Athletic Association website and got to talk to them. Mm -hmm. And the story kind of shifted away from that, partially because they all told me that that's kind of the stereotypical thing that people think about when you think about why there's not refer why there's not more referees why people don't want to referee but you know it was still I thought a, a good way of kind of explaining like look you all these parents want their kids to play sports and get involved which is great but if you don't have referees that's not going to happen I mean one of the baseball um, the baseball umpire I talked to Jeff Kleiner said that you know they've had JV games at the high school level where they only have one umpire because they don't have enough people to work. You have guys that are getting way overworked. So there's a lot of, you know, nuance to the issue. And it was also the story idea kind of came up in our light period of the schedule because fall sports had ended. Winter sports weren't going to start for another three, four weeks. So I was kind of looking for stuff to write about and and that kind of came together. Yeah, I'll I'll confess that when I read the headline, I thought it was going to be because of heckling. But uh, like a good news story, it it surprised me with new information. So could you tell us what was it that you learned as what the situation was with regards to availability of officials and what was behind the what was driving the trend? I think, you know, one of the things that was mentioned that I never thought a ton about, but maybe I should have because my dad umpired a little bit when he was younger, is that for some of these officials, their dads or other people in their family refereed. So they grew, they would go to the games and watch and see how it was done. And then, and then when they, when they turned, you know, 16 years old, maybe a little bit younger, they would start learning how to referee. And now that just doesn't happen as much. Some of it has to do with, I think Kyle Schofield, the football official I talked to mentioned that like his son, I think is only eight or nine years old, isn't allowed to be on the sidelines during games for like safety precautions. Um, But there's a lot of, you know, kids have a lot of other stuff going on and refereeing just isn't necessarily at the forefront of their minds. And when you couple that with the fact that you see videos on social media of referees getting abused, like, why would you want to do that? And I think something else that they touched on a little bit and, yeah. you know, I think might be more of an issue than they realize is just the pay. I, I think the pay is probably pretty good. It seems like compared to, you know, if you're working at, you know, Dunkin' Donuts or, or you know, coffee house or something like that. But if you want more people to want to do it, it has to, people have to want to be compensated, you know, it has to compensate appropriately. And if they're not, then that's not going to help attract people. So 
think those are all kind of issues that they've been grappling with and things that came up when I was reporting for that story. Uh, I'm a parent and I'm at that stage now where my kids are starting to get involved in youth sports. And there were a couple of soccer games that I went to this fall that had what they called coacheries. Have you, I don't know if you've heard that term before, but this was where the coaches from the two sides had uh, whistles around their neck and were running around the field simultaneously coaching their side of the team while also calling fouls, supposedly unbiased. And I can tell you that as a uh, spectator, I didn't like it one bit. It sounds pretty tough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I hope that they can find a solution to this. I, I don't want to yeah. be uh, having any more coacheries in my future. Yeah, I mean, I will say that one of the things that several of the officials said was most of them referee high school athletics. A few said that the problems that we met that I mentioned before with the abuse is a, you know, likely more of an issue at the younger levels because you're more likely to have more parents who have a little bit more over optimistic expectation of how athletic their kids are. And they haven't realized that they're maybe not the next Patrick Mahomes or, you know, Mike Trout or whatever sport they're playing. Uh Um, but you know, one one thing that I did I had heard before I wrote this story was I was I worked on a different story about Pittsfield athletics and they're a very small school. They only have I think 150 students, and their athletic director Jay Dara is also the boys basketball coach and the baseball coach, and he used to be the boys soccer coach, and he does everything there. He you know, lines the fields, he gets the, you know, everything ready for game day. And there was an instance in this past fall where they, the middle school team did not have officials and he had to officiate the game. So he said that they wouldn't do that for high school game, but it was a middle school game. So they would do that or they didn't play. It's an issue. And, you know, they've, because they've had trouble attracting younger people for, probably 10 to 20 years now, it's starting to catch up with them as as older guys retire. If it's a problem that's been 10 to 20 years in the making, is it going to take that long to fix it? That's a good question. I think they're hoping it doesn't. I think it seems like the pandemic really hurt in both at, at both ends because it mm-hmm. simultaneously accelerated retirement for older referees and also prevented younger people from getting involved because there was nothing going on. Or if it was, it was, you know, people didn't want to go out and get sick or whatever, whatever their reasoning was. So it, it seems like the numbers have started to increase since the pandemic has receded from overtaking everything. But even still, like if you look at the New Hampshire football officials, they currently have about 100. In an ideal world, they would have about 140, 150. Right now, they're adding about 13 to 15 new officials a year, but they're losing like 8 to 12. Hmm. So you're if you're netting three every year, it's going to take you a long time to kind of get back to where you need to be. Now, we should mention that like the current state of affairs is not great, but it's still working. So right. as long as they're not losing more than they're gaining, things should be okay. They won't be, again, as optimal as they should be, but it's going to take a while to get back to that number if that's even still achievable. What sort of feedback have you had since that story was published? I think uh, a couple of the referees enjoyed the story. I think they always appreciate just 
getting the word out. And this is a way to do that. I had one of them on, I do my own podcast mm -hmm. with the monitor sports and I had Kyle Schofield on just to talk more about his experiences. And he's also a younger guy. I think he's only like 38, 39 years old. So, and, and I mean, you look at a lot of these officiating organizations, the mm -hmm. average age there is north of 50, 55. So he's definitely one of the younger ones there that officiates and just kind of getting a, a younger voice on why he loves it and why he's gotten involved and stuff like that has been helpful. And uh, I know that my editors enjoyed the story because they've had kids that have gone through the same thing where you hear parents heckling referees and stuff like that. And I think it's important to put a face on these folks that work really hard and they're doing it. They're not, I mean, a lot of them say they don't do it as much for the money as they just enjoy being around the sports. I mean, some of them are older and they can't play anymore. Others, you know, ended their athletic careers after high school. Yeah. And this is just a way for them to stay involved with, with the games that they like. So I'm glad that we, that we were able to get the story and uh, that the officials were willing to talk for it because I think it was informative for people to understand exactly what's going on. Yeah. You also uh, wrote a story recently about Annie Custer, one of uh, New Hampshire's representatives in Congress and her passion for the ski industry. You mentioned your growing interest perhaps in politics. You seem to be someone with interest outside of the playing field. Do you see sports journalists as offering something to the front page that perhaps a general news reporter might not be able to offer? The way that I look at it, like we can use the, the, the Annie Custer story as an example. People love, not everybody, but a lot of people love sports and it means a lot to them. But especially at the level that I cover, which is mostly high school, most of those kids are not going to be playing in college or professionally. Yeah. So why are they playing their sports, right? It's to build relationships with teammates, learn from coaches, have fun, you know, get out after after class and have a chance to, you know, kind of let off some steam and stuff like that. And so I always kind of keep that in mind when I think about what to write about. And it's like, how how is what's happening here applicable to the broader population? And with the Annie Custer story, I was assigned to cover her election night party in November. And I was doing some research on her because I wasn't that familiar with uh, her being new to the area. And I saw that she was the co-chair of this bipartisan ski and snowboard caucus. So when I was at the event, I got to meet her and I mentioned it and she, it was very clear right away how much, how happy she was that I brought it up and how much she loves skiing. And so I had said, oh, we, we should do a story about this. And she said, absolutely. So it took a little time to coordinate with her staff and whatever, but it's important because skiing in New Hampshire means a lot to people. Yeah, It means a lot to, you know, recreationally, economically. And climate change is having a major impact on the ability of it staying viable. I mean, I talked to one of the people I interviewed for the story um, is in uh, works with Ski New Hampshire, which works a lot of ski areas on keeping their locations, I guess, adequately staffed and, and maintained and all that stuff. And she said, look, like these areas used to be making snow before Thanksgiving, people would go out and now they, they can't anymore because it's too, it's not cold enough and the conditions don't allow for it. And so this is a, you know, again, this is a sports activity, but it impacts a lot of people who might not be diehard basketball or baseball or football or whatever fans. And I think it kind of sheds a light into 
this issue in a way that maybe can rally people behind it. I One of the things I like is that this is a bipartisan caucus that she's yeah. a co-chair with. The Republican who she co-chairs with, who's from Utah, was on some international trip. So I wasn't able to speak with him, unfortunately, for it. But it was just kind of a nice little like thing that, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a huge thing. They haven't gotten a ton of like actual legislation passed yet, but it was just like a neat thing where you have Democrats and Republicans trying to you know, acknowledging that this is an issue and and hopefully trying to work to address it. Eric, we've spoken to some uh, more veteran journalists who have sort of expressed some concern over the trajectory of this industry. And I wonder how do you see the journalism industry going specifically your community newspaper or like the statewide newspaper, like the monitor? Do you have a, a prediction as to what it's going to look like five, 10, 20 years from now? I wish I did, but I think, you know, it comes, it comes back to two things in my mind, like why do, why do these things, why do these local papers exist? What purpose do they serve? And does the public find it valuable? Because if the public doesn't find it valuable, they're not going to subscribe. There's going to be no revenue for the papers to survive and they're going to close, which has happened. In my mind, like there is some appetite for local news because I think, and and, and this is something that mm-hmm. I think came to light in the political world a couple of weeks ago is so my family's from Long Island and our congressman elect, George Santos has had all these stories in the New York Times and other outlets about all these things that he either misrepresented or lied about flat out or other things. And people were saying, well, like, how come nobody caught this before? Yeah. And I think there was one outlet that had written about it in some capacity, but nobody saw it clearly. (laughs) And stuff like that slips through the cracks. And it reminds you that it is important to have local journalists who can cover this stuff because it wasn't there. And now he got elected and you don't know if he would have gotten elected anyway, but this is important information that he misrepresented. So my point in bringing that up is that, you know, I cover sports, so I don't necessarily know that I would, you know, I, it's not like I'm, I'm holding people to account as much as a political reporter or news reporter, a regular news reporter might, but you know, one of the whole premises of journalism is to hold people in power accountable. And so if it's not there, then people are not going to be held as accountable as they were before. But I think that's why it comes back to why it's important for journalists. And I think this podcast is trying to do this uh, to build trust with local people, people in local areas and, and get them to understand why what we do is important. Yeah. You know, I like sports. That's why I got into this to begin with. I like sports. I like to write. I've never been, I I know there's some people I went to school with who are very big on being very like esoteric about why they go into journalism and it's to be the, you know, saviors of democracy and all that stuff. I don't usually think about that as much because it's not very helpful to my day-to-day job, but like it's, it serves a purpose. And, you know, I think the medium in which it gets distributed will continue to evolve in the future. I don't know how viable print media will continue to be, but I think that's on local organizations to figure out how do we continue to do our jobs in a way that people care, right? Does that mean more digital stuff? Does that mean podcasts? Does that mean videos, more social media presence, like Uh there's a whole bunch of different avenues you can go. And I think it's going to be up to local organizations to kind of figure out like, what do people, what are people interested in paying us to do? 
It's an interesting way to look at it. What are people paying us to do? Yeah. Well, are you working on any uh, any other stories that you'd like to preview right now? Nothing super big. I kind of wound down everything before the holiday break, mostly because we had a bunch of papers that needed to be filled and I had a bunch of stuff written in advance. Most of the stuff I have right now is just local, local sports coverage because we got a bunch of games. Winter sports are kind of in full swing now. I have uh, something we were discussing before the call, uh, before we started recording is one of the local indoor sports complex that has a bunch of fields is being bought by a different group of owners or a different owner. And so it's no longer going to be an indoor sports complex. So we're just going to have a quick thing about how this has been a very impactful facility in the Bow area. And the fact that it's not going to be there for much longer is going to have a big impact on athletic opportunities for kids. And one other thing too, that caught my attention when I was on vacation last week was I saw that New Hampshire, the NHIAA is allowing NIL name image likeness to be allowed for high school students. And that's been a big thing in the college sports world the last year or so now that that became legal. So I'm kind of interested in the impact that's going to have because high school athletes don't have the same platform necessarily that college athletes do, which is why they would get those level of endorsements that college athletes have. It's something that I'm interested in kind of diving into to see what impact that's going to have on uh, high school athletes. That is, that sounds like a really interesting story. I'll have to keep an eye out for that one. Uh, well, that's all the questions I have. Uh, Julie, have you, would you have any questions for Eric? I do, Eric. I have just one question. What kind of advice would you give someone who's interested in journalism, but might not know where to start to get their foot in the door? Um, I think... It's important. I mean, if that person is in, you know, high school or college, I think looking at local student, looking at student media is always the first thing I tell people because that's where you can really get that good experience. You know, I always say that, like, I learned more from my work with the Northwestern student radio station than I did from any of my classes. And that's not like a knock on any of my professors or class I took because they were all wonderful and I learned a lot from them. But you get that real practical experience of being on a deadline, talking to people, you know, right after a game, stuff like that, that you just can't really replicate in a class setting. Mm -hmm. And so I, and you also get to, you know, eventually rise up into leadership positions if you want, where you're mm -hmm. an editor in chief, or I was sports director of our radio station. So, you know, that's, I think the best way to start. And then you get your foot in the door through internships. You know, if you're sitting at home over the summer, you call, see if your local paper wants anyone. I mean, we have a high school student now at the Monitor who goes to one of the high schools we cover who will send in some stuff. They play games. Uh, he'll send in recaps and stuff like that. Um, so I think that's the big thing. And then people say it's for every profession, but networking is very important too. You know, whether it's you intern somewhere, staying in touch with those people, developing relationships with the people you're at school with if you're doing this in high school or college and then you kind of go into the same field staying in touch with them because everybody knows everybody in the journalism profession it seems it can never hurt to know a bunch of people so uh i think those are the things and i think the other thing is and this is really for any profession but think about like why you want to do this because it's great to do in college and cover your team and stuff like that but now, you know, like what I'm doing now is I'm moving, I moved to an area that I was very unfamiliar with. And now I'm covering uh, these high school teams. And it's different for many reasons. But I think the reason I'm doing it is still the same because I like writing and I like telling stories about the, these athletes. So thinking about like why you want to go into it is also important. And some people don't know right away. And that's fine. I think those are all important things to think about. Thank you. I think that's good advice. 
Yeah, excellent answers. Well, Eric, anything uh, anything else you'd like to say? Just you know, thank you guys again for having me on. It's been uh, great to chat, and you know, as as I think you said when you first reached out to me, Adam, is you know, I think it's important for folks to hear from local reporters, maybe because I like hearing myself talk. But even still, I think again, like from from the perspective of how does how does local journalism stay viable in the future? I think a lot of that comes back to building trust and building relationships with people in the community. And I mean, and that's important everywhere. I mean, if you look at successful companies, they're they're good at the CEO is good at the best yeah. run companies. The CEO is involved with the with the staff and stuff like that. And effective politicians, I mean, they're in the community. People know them, they trust them, they understand them. Like getting that buy in from people is very important to them supporting you. So that that that's you know, I'm glad that you guys are doing this, and uh, I'm excited to see where it goes. Well, thank you very much. And, and thank you for joining us, Dez. I've I really enjoyed uh, getting a chance to talk with you. Thanks, Eric. Thanks so much, guys. Bye-bye. The Granite Beat is a project of the Granite State News Collaborative in partnership with the Laconia Daily Sun. We record at the Lakeport Opera House, and our theme music is composed by Bob McCarthy. Thanks also to the Marlin Fitzwater Center at Franklin Pierce University for editing and other support. 